Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, please open up your Bibles to the book of First Peter, where we'll pick up on our study with chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Again, First Peter, chapter 2, 11 and 12. Follow along as I read. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on on the day of visitation. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We know, Father, that you use your word to draw us to you and to change us. We ask that you would do that today. In faith, we ask that you would um, give us your spirit as we sit under your word and learn in grace and in truth. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, I want to begin today's sermon by talking about uh, a subject that comes up in the sermon, and in First Peter, actually, in the first couple of chapters, we've seen this, and that's the relationship between your identity and how you behave. Uh, this has been on my mind a lot in the, in the past few years, particularly as it relates to education. As a lot of you know, I'm a local high school teacher, and one of my academic interests uh, or areas of focus is really understanding how to create a classroom environment where students take on the identity as students and want to achieve and grow. And over the past couple of years, a lot of my reading has influenced some of, um, of these things. Uh, and one book uh, that came out uh, recently, in the last couple of years, is a book called The Triple Package by an author named Amy Chua. Now, some of you will probably know Amy Chua. She was a New York Times bestselling author. She wrote a book maybe five years ago called The Battle Hymn of the Tiger Mother. Okay? And she was a self-proclaimed tiger mom. And, and what a tiger mom meant was uh, basically, particularly, uh, tends to be a, an Asian mother who pushes her children hard towards all kinds of success. And sure enough, um, she kind of in this memoir explores kind of how she did it and, and why that's a good thing. And of course, the book was met with um, uh, accolades from some and uh, criticism from others. But uh, it kind of started a cultural conversation about, you know, how do you parent kids that become successful? And indeed, her kids became concert pianists and went to Ivy League schools. And I haven't kept up with their story, but no doubt are doing remarkable things today. Um, uh, and it, it's interesting. It raises a question about identity and success. And of course, I have had a lot of students who um, have been very successful students. And it, and it seems like it is really innate um, with their identity. Well, Chua and her husband, uh, a Yale law professor named Jed Rubenfeld, uh, wrote a follow-up book that wasn't more about their experience, but just looking at successful American minority groups. And, um, and trying to say, trying to ask the question, what is it that uh, is, is part of these groups' identity that make them so successful in the world? These groups have the you know, above average um, 
uh, level of education and, and make more money than average and are, are successful by the world standards. And um, in their study, they focused on a few different groups, and they didn't focus on uh, Chinese or Korean families. They focused on uh, people who came from South Asia, particularly Indians, Iranians, Cubans, Nigerians from the Igbo tribe, and Mormons, who, uh, if you look at those cultural minorities, they tend to be uh, more successful in academics and certainly financially as well. And in their study, they found that all of these cultures had three traits in common. And no one, there was no you know, national convention of these cultures where they decided to focus on these three traits. They just, these traits were part of their identity. They were core. And the first was, um, in all of these cultures, you see a cultural superiority narrative. They come into the dominant culture as minorities, and within the dominant culture, in this case American culture, they have an internal story in their group that the way we do things is superior to the way that the dominant culture does things. And, and, And you're raised believing that. That's central to the identity is we as a people are more successful because our story is the right story. The second trait, uh, and this should be no surprise, is the ability, uh, what, what they call impulse control. That is that they raise their children um, with the ability to restrain immediate gratification for delayed gratification. And of course, over time, this creates, they would say, a stronger work ethic. The ability to delay the immediate thing in order to pursue the harder uh, path that leads to greater outcomes. And then the third characteristic um, is a sense of insecurity. That if I grow up in this culture, I can never measure up. I can never be good enough. And that, that might sound to you, as it does to me, kind of, kind of disturbing that um, this would happen. Well, after reading that, I, I started asking some of my students from these cultural groups about their opinions about this. Because, you know, after all, it's you know, just a book. <laughs> so, uh, and I've changed the names of students to protect their identities because, well, they, they've all graduated. But um, seemed like a good idea. Uh, I, I spoke to uh, a student named Vijay, we'll call him, and he's an Indian student, very successful. Uh, and uh, I, in the book, there's this passage about within the Indian cultural system, this narrative, and particularly he had come from a background that uh, adopted the caste system, and so you have a cultural, you know, he was from a high caste. And I read him the paragraph. I said, uh, is there kind of critique uh, or evaluation of your culture? Is that accurate? And he said, absolutely, unequivocally, that describes my culture. And then another student, uh, a Nigerian student of mine, um, who is now at Stanford, a very successful student, um, I asked him, I said, are you from the Igbo tribe? And he said, how did you know? <laughs> yeah, that's my people. That's our tribe. Um, and uh, he, he'd never uh, even thought that someone would, would acknowledge that or know that kind of cultural insider detail. And so this year in my theory of knowledge class, we were talking about the relationship between personal knowledge and shared knowledge. And I brought up this same idea about how 
you know, there are things that we learn in our culture that become core to our identity. And I, I named these three things. And then spontaneously, one of my students, very quiet girl, we'll call her Shirlene, she, I, I named these three, three traits and she said, every day of my life. I said, wow, Shirlene, wow, that hit a nerve. I didn't know, she hadn't spoken all semester. Um, I, I, I said, that really hit a nerve. And she said, you have no idea. And it was really chilling, actually. And uh, I, I probably didn't handle that well. I don't even remember how I handled it. It was such a striking comment. But the, the idea was that in these cultures, there were, there were some core identity factors that, that were reiterated again and again. And on the, the outcome of that was a particular kind of behavior that looked something like, ultimately, academic success. And I am by no means claiming that this is how you ought to adopt, you know, a, a parenting your own children or anything like that. But really, as an illustration that our identity, our core identity is so, uh, in, in maybe unassuming ways, ways that we don't even realize, should shape our behavior. And it should come to, as no surprise then, that Peter spends so much time in this book, in chapter 1, and what we've seen in chapter 2 so far, playing with these ideas of what is your identity and what is your behavior because of your identity. In chapter 1, uh, he, he tells us who we are. He tells us what our identity is. He says uh, at one point that we are children of God, Right? He points us to a core uh, belief in who we are as Christians. And as children, we are called uh, to be holy, to conduct ourselves with fear in the time of exile. Here's who you are. Here's how you ought to behave. Twice, uh, he calls us born again, fundamentally a new identity And as in chapter 1, verse 23, we see him follow that with, So, put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Last week's passage um, was full of identity statements. Who we are. A chosen people. Living stones. A holy nation. Royal priesthood. The recipients of mercy. Peter wants again and again to know who we are as God's people grounded in who Jesus is. But he also wants to uh, make very clear, because of who you are, here's how you ought to be acting. Because identity shapes behavior, but behavior reinforces identity, doesn't it? And we see this dance between these two concepts. And in fact, in our short passage today, only two verses, we see this construction. Who you are, so how are you supposed to act? And you'll see in your bulletin, I've broken it down into three points. So let's focus on the first one. Who we are. In our passage, what are the identity statements that Peter wants us to uh, dial uh, zero in on? In verse 11, he calls the church... He is writing to three things. He calls them beloved, sojourners, and exiles. Beloved is a term of 
affection and endearment. We don't tend to use that term much anymore, but Peter is an apostle. He's sent, uh, he sent this letter to several churches, and he is responsible for nurturing the spiritual lives of the church, teaching them, warning them, exhorting them. And while we just get in his introduction to this letter, this general uh, greeting to all these people, not specific people might, like you might get in one of Paul's letters, um, there's still this sense of a deep care for this group of people, even though he might not uh, be thinking of them as individuals. Beloved is a term of affection. And I would have to say that uh, if you think about uh, Peter, uh, my mind is just drawn to John 21, where Jesus restores Peter after he denied Jesus three times. And Jesus asks him, do you love me? And Peter, of course, says, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Love you. Three times this happens, but uh, Jesus gives him something to do. Feed my sheep. Feed my lambs. Take care of my sheep. There's a pastoral care and, and love here for Peter uh, taking care of the flock is really important because it really is a recognition of his, his love and comes out of his love for the Lord and he loves his people dearly. So we're beloved. If you're a leader in the church or you have uh, influence in the church, um, I hope that that is a growing experience that you have um, uh, by God's grace. Um, and if you're in the church, I, I hope you know that you're beloved. Um, certainly um, uh, by the Lord who's called you, but also um, by, your, by the leaders in your church. When Peter uses this word beloved, though, it, it, it's interesting. He uses it a few times in, in both of these letters, and it always precedes something like a warning, Beloved, he says in uh, chapter 4, verse 12, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes uh, upon you. And in 2 Peter chapter 3, uh, he, he says, uh, this now is the second letter that I'm writing you, beloved. And later in verse 3, he says, the scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. Uh, in three, uh, chapter 3, verse 14 of the same book, he says, Therefore, beloved, since you're waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish at peace. When, when Peter uses this word beloved, the, the image that comes to, to my mind is, uh, you know, a parent's last conversation with their child before a major life transition, like going to college or going to the military or getting married where they would just grab you by the shoulders. Maybe some of you have had these kinds of conversations with parents and they say, hey, don't screw this up, <laughs> okay? Hey, I love you. Be careful out there. I know, I know, I'm warning you, but I, it's because I love you. It's the spirit of this, uh, when Peter uses the word beloved, he wants to call attention, because I love you, I'm telling you these things that might not be the most comfortable for you to think about. His, his term of endearment precedes warnings about things that would seek to destroy or malign the church from within or without. And of course, uh, on, on the heels today of our passage of him calling uh, his, the church beloved, Peter reminds the church of a part of their identity 
um, that to them must have been particularly palpable, being exiles and sojourners. We know in looking at chapter 1 that he's writing to this exiled church. These are people who have been cast away from everything they've known, uh, from, uh, in many cases, their families, um, their, their work, their land, their language, uh, because of persecution for the sake of the gospel. And so for him to remind them that they're exiles and sojourners might think, well, would they even need this reminder? This has to be really present on their mind. But in fact, uh, Peter, I'd say, is giving this uh, to them because being exiles and sojourners is something they need to be mindful of and, and something that should be core to their identity. In the preceding passage from last week, we had this recognition of identity. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. You're part of this imperishable kingdom that I've established. And then right on the heels, and I want you to remember that you're exiles and sojourners. It's paradoxical. Um, To be exiled is to be cast away. But right on the heels of being being recognized as someone who isn't cast away, who's part of something that is uh, permanent. We see in uh, Peter a a lot of language about permanence. Earlier in chapter 1, we see language about being part of this royal priesthood. We see language about being a people for his own possession. We see language about having an imperishable inheritance, something that won't pass away. And this is contrasted in Peter. Um, uh, Look at uh, chapter 1 of 1 Peter, verse 4. He says, we have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And then later in chapter 6, or verse 6, he says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. This contrast with the permanence of God's Uh, kingdom, but the experience of temporary pain and suffering is real. And I believe he doesn't want merely this church or this group of Christians to have this message. Because in chapter 1, verses 24 and 25, he speaks to this on a, a more universal level. He reminds us that life is temporary for all of us. All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. You feel that tension between the permanence of, of something that's everlasting, that won't end, but also the reality of things passing away. Our lives are temporary. The word is permanent. So Peter's message is not just for the geographically displaced exiles. He's speaking to us. His message is for us. He wants us to know that our position in this world is temporary and it's fleeting. We need to be reminded of that. Okay. There's a tendency uh, for exiles to come into a new culture and to adopt certain traits of that culture that are advantageous for them, and to get rid of certain traits that are disadvantages for them. And so just looking at uh, 
when people move into a culture, the, these things might take place over the, culture, uh, the course of generations. But we're not just exiles. We need to be reminded that um, we are also sojourners. We're passing through. Okay? Sojourners. That's a strange term. What it means is to be in a place temporarily. To know that you're going to be there temporarily. If you've ever had the experience of studying abroad, um, you would know that. I'm going to be here for a few months studying, and I can uh, you know, enjoy the culture, get to understand it. Some of you have done missions trips where you have a similar experience. Um, some of you have been more long-term, uh, on long-term missions. And you know what that's like to uh, enjoy a culture, to be interested in all the aspects of it, but to not be part of it. Sojourners know that this isn't permanent. And they're keenly aware that they are something distinct. Okay? An exile might set up camp and stay there because they have no other choice and they don't know where to go, but so- sojourners know where they're going to go. When I was in uh, college, I, I got to, to travel uh, for a semester abroad, and I went to England, and uh, on one of kind of my vacation days, I went up to Scotland. I was kind of hiking around by myself, and I was really hungry, and what did I see? A pizza hut, Okay. Pizza Hut. And I thought, okay, I'm going to get, you know, a full meal. I, I haven't had acid reflux in a while, so, you know, better, you know, go over there. And, um, and I go in there, and there is this pizza that you could barely tell it was a pizza because the two ingredients on the pizza were corn and tuna fish, okay? And this corn and tuna fish pizza, I'm looking at this and saying, what a strange people these Scottish people are that... This didn't accidentally happen. Someone had the idea. You know what there's a market for around here? Um, Corn and tuna fish pizza. They had adulterated the pizza, okay? Pizza Hut had decided that, you know, uh, let's just change a few things here to kind of conform to the strange appetites of the culture. And and that's what they did. And I didn't eat it because I knew better. Um, (laughs) um, And... However you know, strange an illustration that is, I think to some degree we can live life like that where we just change a few things, you know? And then at some point things are so changed that they're no longer that thing, right? We wage war, um, Peter says. We need, to, we need to realize that there's a tendency to adulterate, to take on Uh, aspects of the prevailing culture to the point that it actually makes us forget what our own identity is. And we need to fight against that. It's the focus of the next point in the bulletin, what we fight. Any religion can be known for having lots of buzzwords. Certainly Christianity, we have our our buzzwords, our kind of insider language. Some of it's really unavoidable because that's the best word for it. Um, So you guys are probably, you know, uh, if you've been a believer for a while, really familiar with kind of the lingo. But here is a Christian term that you don't hear anymore. This is very popular in the 17th and 18th century. That was a foundational idea uh, within the church and, and with regard to sin. And that is calling the church the church militant. You ever heard that term, the church militant? Right? There's almost nothing about that term that sounds... Um, 
really positive uh, <laughs> at the beginning, does it, right? We don't like the term militant anymore, okay? But I would say that this description for the church militant and what it meant in the time was the church on earth right now before the coming of the Lord is to be about fighting sin within and without. That's a fundamental job of the church. And in keeping with this passage here, we see that Peter says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which what? Wage war against your soul. Peter's calling us to be on a war footing. Now, one question is, why would you use the word the church militant? Well, it sounds strange, but certainly this notion of fighting against sin with, with the intensity of war, um, while it's not popular now, it's biblically defensible. We like to use other words, and, and there might be other words that are appropriate for time and place, but, but the word stumble or struggle seems to me categorically different from warfare, militant, okay? And again, I'm not saying we, we shouldn't use those words, but I don't think they capture the spirit of what um, Peter is saying here. Um, he tells us that sin wants to destroy us. The passions war against our soul. They want to destroy our soul. And interestingly enough, he gives us a way to wage war. And the word isn't probably not a very popular word either. Abstain, right? Stop it. Don't do that. What's the connection between our identity as exiles and sojourners and abstaining from these sinful desires? As a holy nation exiled in another culture, we will inevitably encounter things that arouse our passions, which can destroy us. The word passion in this text is a curious one. Uh, it's the Greek word epithumeia, and you don't need to remember that, but what it means is it translates to, not sometimes it translates to passion or desire, but the word really means an over-desire. Epithumia, an over-desire. And it's often associated in Scripture with the world or the way things we used to think about things. Uh, Peter's used it once already in chapter 1, verse 14. He says, we are called not to be conformed to the over-desires of our former ignorance. In 1 John 2, 15 through 17, he says, do not love the world or the things in the world, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires or the over-desires, same word of the flesh, and the over-desires of the eyes and the pride of life. It's not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away. There's our temporary language again, along with its desires. And it's the same word, over-desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. James 1, uh, 13 through 15 says, Let no one say when he's tempted, I am being tempted by God. 
For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own over-desires. So Peter's writing to these churches, encouraging them to abstain from these over-desires. Now, I probably don't need to lead you through the project of finding out what your over-desires are. Okay? Um, I think one important thing that I don't want to overlook is that Peter assumes that we all have them. Okay? Um, Think of the things you obsess over, the things that constantly occupy your mind, uh, the things that entice you. You Often these are lusts or, or maybe covetousness, but they tend to point to one core thing. They're things that we think in seeking after and and acting on them, they're going to make us feel better. We're going to be better and life will be uh, more fulfilling and meaningful. And of course we know this, that's a lie. These over-desires lead to destruction, whether it's addiction or bitterness or or, uh, crippling debt, um, relational ruin. That's what they tend to lead to. I would add this, though. Um, The objects of desires are often not bad things in and of themselves. They're often good things. But the over-desire of those things are what turn them towards a kind of idolatry. So, for instance, the desire for security and providing your family with stability, that could uh, be a good thing. But the over-desire for that could lead to a couple of strange things. It could could lead to... um, uh, greed, or uh, it could lead to covetousness, or it can um, uh, lead to withholding um, and selfishness. You know, God created man and woman for sexual and relational in- intimacy, but an over-desire for these things out of his context, uh, his godly context, can result in lust and fornication. Um, and even just daily things, like just buying stuff and, and having stuff, those can be good things, right? Um, to make something and it's worth someone purchasing and it, it adds some value to their life, can be used for, for good things. We were asked, to, we, were, we were given dominion over the earth and to use the resources in the earth. And, and we do that. But the over-desire for things and stuff can lead to vanity or covetousness or, or debt or financial ruin. And we've been given this new eternal identity, and we're asked to get rid of those over-desires, to, to abstain from those. <clears throat> Peter acknowledges that old identity and those old desires which are passing away, they cling to us. And we have to fight them. We have to be on a war, war footing. And this involves self-control, self-restraint. And I think even before that involves just acknowledging that those are real, right? Uh, Any addiction treatment program, you have to acknowledge that you have to abstain from the thing, um, that the addiction exists. And often in the community of people where it's safe to kind of get support because it's not always easy to do on your own. In the church, this can look like confession of sin, can look like a community of, of, of believers promoting godliness and discouraging uh, these things and creating a place where you can confess and pray and work through these things together. 
but it's complicated, right? It's hard because we're, again, exiles and sojourners, and we're in the prevailing culture that might not be encouraging these kind of godly disciplines, right? They encourage us in the opposite direction altogether. We, we live in an on-demand culture, right? Where if I have a, a desire, there's an immediate outlet for, for gratifying that desire. And so we have to be careful. We have to be thoughtful. We have to be watchful. Um, in short, we have to be militant. Because the reality is that sin is destructive, right? Um, the I, One you know, way to illustrate this is think of cancer. And if, if you went to your doctor and they found something that looked like melanoma, you wouldn't just say, ah, oh, you know, don't worry about that, right? No, you would say, cut that off. And what do I need to do to make sure I don't have any more of that? And you'd go through medical screenings to make sure that it hasn't gone anywhere. And you would change your lifestyle. You wouldn't just, you know, be out in the sun without a hat. And you wouldn't be, you know, uh, uh, spending time at the river without sunscreen, right? You would be vigilant. But instead, we oftentimes think of sin like something else. It doesn't have this, this, this effect on us. We, we might think of it kind of more like, you know, an appendix bursting. Well, you know, it's kind of always there, and something might happen. It might get really bad, and then I have to deal with it. But it doesn't tend to be how sin works. Uh, sin destroys. On a side note, without going in, into any details, I was just thinking about this this week. I got an email from an old friend um, who just had a really difficult, has, they've had a difficult few years. And there was a, a, a pattern in their life of leaving the faith and, um, and, and ultimately uh, the reality is re- there's a lot of relational strife and difficulty and brokenness as a result of chasing after desires, over-desires. They had passions for health and wellness and adventure and self-expression. And these things um, have done a lot of ruin and a lot of pain. And I I assume that that story could be multiplied in many directions. We need to be watchful. And we need to heed Peter's words. And we need to be watchful not just over ourselves and over each other, but we need to be watchful because we're being watched. The call that Peter gives us to active restraint or self-control is followed by a call to the action of self-sacrifice. Look look, uh, with me at verse uh, 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. In this land of our sojourn, it's not simply the case that we need to refrain from anything so as to protect ourselves from that which might tempt or lure us. Instead, we are called to engage with the world, living publicly honorable lives of service and self-sacrifice. As exiles and sojourners, we are being watched by the world. And it's a world that doesn't believe what we believe. They don't believe in the God of the Bible. They're not interested in the growth of his kingdom. Many would deny that. Um, and to be a Christian witness in that can be difficult. To unapologetic, unapologetically proclaim the gospel message that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, that cuts against and through virtually every culture. 
It offers some competition and some challenges. And Peter recognizes that these people, this church, they're exiles and they're sojourners. And and, and Peter acknowledges something that's particularly true of Christians, but it's generally true in the world. And that is that people don't like exiles and sojourners coming in on their turf. It's rare that a nation would have at the base of one of its monuments, as we do, this phrase, give us your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. You guys will recognize that from the base of the Statue of Liberty, right? The new Colossus. The author of that was Emma Lazarus, a poet, but also a Jew. And she had a very biblical idea and concept of how what, how God calls people to treat exiles and sojourners. One that's different from the prevailing view. In the ancient world, to be an alien or a stranger or a sojourner was putting yourself at risk of becoming enslaved or robbed or killed. And today, some of the most exploited people in our nation um, who've left other, uh, are, are those who have left other cultures and countries. And in the world we see today, Christians are exploited in parts of the world, notably the Yazidi people, an ancient Christian group who um, are, are undergoing a genocide, being displaced, those who can get out of Syria and Iraq, having to flee for their lives. Emma Lazarus's vision, though, is a biblical one. Deuteronomy 10.19 says this, Love the sojourner. Therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Similar uh, in Leviticus 19.34. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Peter speaks to this early church, these people who who are themselves exiles and sojourners in a place that isn't going to receive them as the Bible would call uh, them to be received. And uh, Peter is asking them to treat the Gentiles in their uh, midst uh, with honor and with good deeds. Peter's call to honor and to good works despite the persecution really maps on to the Old Testament vision for how the people of Israel should be treating exiles and foreigners. Interestingly enough, I would say, and paradoxically, here we have these people that Peter's writing to who are exiles and, and, and sojourners, and, and he's asking, hey, look at the people who you are with, these people in whose land you're, you find yourself, and you treat them as exiles and sojourners. But how God wants you to treat them The greatest story humankind has ever heard is one where God himself leaves his home to sojourn here on earth, to stay and dwell with the exiles and to show them the way home. This is the man Jesus, who was also God, and he was tempted with all the, uh, all the world had to offer him, and yet he abstained. But he didn't uh, cut himself off from the world. He didn't live an ascetic life. He ate with sinners and tax collectors. He touched the disease. He took on a life of poverty and gave everything he had. Everything. 
and they hated him. He lived an honorable life, and his final good deed of self-sacrifice opened the way for all the exiles, not just the Jews, but all the exiles, all the people in the world. He opened a way for them, granting them entrance not just into his kingdom and his land, but into his family to become children of God if they would repent and believe in him. And those who followed him knew that the full glory of the kingdom of God would not be revealed until the king himself would return and judge all men for their deeds. And they knew that to follow this king was to live a life of self-discipline and self-sacrifice, following in his footsteps, to be misunderstood, maligned, and even martyred for the sake of the kingdom. They knew that the life of an exile uh, is one where the world would hate them even as it hated Jesus. And yet, even in the persecution, the persecution would be one of the very things that would, uh, would disperse these exiles into other lands. And God would uh, use these people to restore peace in places and in families and in lives as they too entered the kingdom. He created the church, the church militant which would fight against sin from within and without, but would uh, eventually adopt, and we will eventually adopt, another outdated Christian label, the church triumphant. But for now, we're exiles and sojourners. That's the reality. And we're on a journey towards our home. And we need to love the locals and invite as many of them in as we can. And, and, and what does this look like? It looks like a lot of things. But one of my favorite all-time Christian examples of this is a early church letter that, uh, called the Letter to Diogenetus. And it's, ex- it's a letter explaining who these strange people who showed up are to a local leader. And so uh, we'll put it up on the screen. Here's the Letter to Diogenetus, or part of it. And it's describing the early Christian church. It says, they dwell in their own countries, but only as sojourners. They bear their shame in all things as citizens, and they endure all hardships as strangers. Every foreign country is a fatherland to them, and every fatherland is foreign. They marry like all other men, and they beget children, but they do not cast away their offspring. They have their meals in common, but not their wives. They find themselves in the flesh, and yet they live not after the flesh. Their existence is on earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. They obey the established laws, and they surpass the laws in their own lives. They love all men, and they are persecuted by all. They are ignored, and yet they are condemned. They are put to death, and yet they are endued with life. They are in beggary, and yet they make many rich. They are in want of all things, and yet they abound in all things. They are dishonored, and yet they are glorified, and they're dishonored. They are evil spoken of, and yet they are vindicated. They are reviled, and they bless. They are insulted, and they respect. Doing good, they are punished as evildoers. Being punished, they rejoice. 
as if they were thereby quickened by life. Isn't this a beautiful description of the kingdom that God has established? Isn't there something in that that is ennobling? What does that mean for us at Grace Fullerton, separated by 1,900 years? Well, Peter calls us to two great things in this passage. We are to be self-controlled by checking our passions, recognizing that the world will prod us in the direction of those passions, but at the same time we are to be self-sacrificing in the world, willingly finding ways to lay down our lives for the sake of the gospel and the love of our King. Self-control and sacrifice. Um, To what degree are those descriptive of you? Uh, Do you look back at your life and look back five years, maybe ten years, do you see these things increasing as the Lord conforms your heart and mind to His? How do we nurture those traits as a body of Christ? Maybe one challenge is, whether or not you say it, at least adopt the mindset of the church militant. How do we nurture those, especially in a culture of self-gratification and self-esteem, which seem to be some of the more predominant virtues in our culture? Increasingly, it's seen, a, seen as a good thing, maybe the best thing to, to give over to your, your over-desires. How do we inoculate our young people against that and ourselves? Do you feel like an exile? Do you feel perfectly at home? If your neighbors don't know Christ, they're, true ex- they're the true exiles. If your coworkers and your employees don't know Christ, they're exiles. And you were an exile who was brought into an everlasting kingdom, an imperishable one. I'd like to end our time in silent prayer about these things. After the service, if you'd like to talk to one of the, uh, the elders, we'd love to or pray with one of the elders about any of these, we can do that as well. So let's spend uh, our last few minutes here in prayer about this passage. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, help us by your Spirit to hold on to the identity that is true of us. And as you sanctify us by your Spirit, would you help us to conform to that identity and act like who we are? Help us, Lord, to be exiles and sojourners in this world, Lord, more fully secure in the reality that we are part of your imperishable kingdom. We thank you for these truths. In Jesus' name, amen.